where we're seeing failures to address um, coronavirus does come all the way back to this really fundamental question of public health has to be a part of what it means to be a functioning society. At the BMJ, we're keen on data, and particularly data transparency. But as the pandemic plays out, we've seen the ways in which the collection of COVID data and its sharing have been flawed. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and it's been a while since we took a public health look at the pandemic. So we've invited back our regular panellists, Kathleen Bashinsky and Sridhar Venkatapuram, to talk about data, why it's fundamental to the social contract. Kathleen, uh, it's been a while since we've done the podcast, so could I get you to introduce yourself? Uh, absolutely. I'm an assistant professor of public health at Muhlenberg College in Pennsylvania. And Srida. Uh, I am an associate professor of global health and philosophy at the King's College London Global Health Institute. Now, Kathleen, this week we've seen moves by the White House to cut the CDC out of the chain of reporting of hospital data. And obviously CDC are the ones who catalogue all of this and and crunch it and and publish that. So it's a a move that's worrying public health physicians in the States. Um, What's going on there? Can you you fill us in? Uh, Absolutely. There's been quite a bit of back and forth over just the last couple of days. Um, But effectively, what happened is that a couple of days ago, the Trump administration ordered hospitals to begin changing how they report uh, coronavirus data to the government. Um, And for decades, historically, uh, that data has been reported to the CDC, which is the the U.S. Federal Public Health Agency. And they instead ordered hospitals to effectively bypass uh, the CDC and how they reported that data. Uh, That resulted in quite an enormous amount of outcry. Uh, Just as one example, uh, the National Association of Science Writers, uh, a group of of journalists in the United States, um, issued a call uh, asking the government to ensure that this data that includes um, information on hospitalizations, availability of PPE, uh, ventilators, ICU beds, other key indicators needs to be publicly available. Um, and then amid all of this, uh, two days ago, there was a sudden disappearance of some of the CDC's coronavirus dashboards um, from the website, which were then subsequently restored the following day. Um, so there's been quite a lot of confusion um, and not only confusion about what's going on with the data, but also confusion as to, to why this change uh, was made in the first place which I think is unfortunately sowing a lot of distrust and uncertainty about um, the reliability of these numbers, which I think has really important public health implications. Yeah, absolutely. And we can see how some of those arguments are are, are playing out and with the lack of, of clarity over that. Now, when we talked before, you also mentioned that um, the collection of data, you know, the number of tests, um, the way tests were being reported, uh, mixing together um, the PCR test and, and the antibody test, um, 
there were issues there anyway has that uh, is that still ongoing or or has that been resolved um that hasn't been fully resolved yet but i think there there have been improvements uh certainly in terms of uh trying to to clarify the nature of of tests that are being reported i think the sort of more recent development that's become uh particularly cons- concerning is what we've seen in the last few weeks is actually very widespread delays in getting back any test results um, and this is partly because uh, in the United States, the numbers have increased very rapidly in the in the last few weeks. We're now setting records for numbers of new cases um, reported every day, and we lack um, sufficient federal coordination um, and lack sufficient sort of staffing uh, and, and um, infrastructure for the, the labs to get the re- results back. And the reason this is a major problem is that if people are having to wait, which they are right now, um, seven, eight, even longer sometimes uh, days in order to get the results back, this makes it very difficult to mount effective uh, contact tracing or isolation or other kinds of Mm. public health uh, actions that you would want to be able to take based on test results. Now, Sridhar, if we turn to you uh, with a a bit more of a UK focus, Uh, Office of National Statistics has been continuing to publish data um, at the national level, and uh, uh, that's seen as as being a good thing. Um, But there are still issues about the granularity of data and uh, and local public health, people worrying that they don't know exactly what's going on in their area. Can you uh, give us an update on, on what's happening Sure. So I think for listeners who are sort of trying to make a comparison between the UK and the US, um, in the US, you have the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. uh, And in the UK, the comparable agency would be Public Health England. Uh, And so Public Health England is also collecting data as well, and particularly uh, infection rates and deaths. And then Office of National Statistics uh, is relying on a large, much broader set of data, demographic uh, data as well. And so it's providing a national synopsis of what's going on. So <clears throat> the question around local uh, authorities. So in the in the UK, we have uh, the sort of different uh, nations and then within the nations and particularly England, you have different cities and, and different sort of uh, sort of areas which are local authorities which have their own governance systems regarding public health directors uh, and other kinds of healthcare care uh, systems. So there seems to be uh, 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 either a systems problem or some sort of miscommunication about local authorities getting sufficient or comprehensive enough data about their own local area. Now, this is because the testing that we're doing for coronavirus is not necessarily coming from within the system. It's something that we've mounted in response, and it's co- it's coming in specific sites. So, for example, um, you know, one of the first places that we started testing, and, and sort of there's different pillars of testing, they call it, is that long-term care homes will get certain kinds of testing if there's 
there's an outbreak. And then there's a more systematic testing that happens once a month or a few months. Um, and so all of those are different arms and interventions in terms of testing. And so it's not that it's coming out of Public Health England and there's one place that's doing the testing and one place that's providing the data. So there's different ways in which uh, the data is being gathered. So the Office of National Statistics, however, can have a very clear da data regarding deaths, because when somebody dies, you have to register a death and that death is sort of centrally located. So that's, I would say, is probably my understanding of the disconnect between everybody being able to have comprehensive data at their fingertips uh, wherever they are in the country. The second point, a related point, is that uh, the government... Uh, you know, focused very much when Boris Johnson was deciding about lifting lockdowns, this idea of an R number, so the reproductive rate. And he basically uh, told the nation that we are going to implement policies based on the R number. That is, is the infectivity rate, the number of people that are being infected by one person, uh, the average number of people, is that going down or up? And what we want to do is that if it's going down, then we will open up in, scale, in sort of scalar fashion. But if it starts to rise, then we'll start closing down again. Now, the thing about it is that, you know, there is a problem here in the analysis or in the way the statistics work is that, you know, a very local R number is not a very reliable number. And so there might be some sort of thing going on there as well about granularities that you can't get an R number for a neighborhood. You can only get it at a certain aggregate level. Both of these are scenarios where the data, whether it's through um, hiding it or, or, or lack of integrity or just uh, because we can't perform the calculations necessary, um, is uncertain. Um, and I wonder, you know, the conversations we've had in the past have uh, tended towards the ethical and uh, that's pertinent here what's at stake there what should we be thinking uh, about in that case i know one of the, the themes that i think we're all interested in is sort of what is the the basic basic ethical responsibility of governments to 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 count the the, the people the people are affected um and to have basic data um, in order to to both inform people of what's going on and in order to have um, the ability to craft policies um, that are based in public health evidence. And speaking from the United States perspective, um, currently there's there's no U.S. state or territory that's publicly providing even, even a complete set of basic measures such as um, numbers of total numbers of recovered patients, um, numbers in intensive care units, uh, and breaking that all down by basic variables such as age, race, and gender. Um, we certainly have a mix of um, some, some state and local governments that are doing better than others, but according to the COVID Tracking Project, which is a, a volunteer organization launched by The Atlantic, a magazine here, um, none, of, none of the U.S. states are yet doing this in a fully comprehensive way. So I think starting just from the, the nuts and bolts questions of the responsibility to provide that basic information, I think the states are not yet meeting that ethical obligation. And Sridhar, can you sort of talk us through that obligation? How does, 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, so thank you very much for raising this question and framing it in ethical terms. I think that it's a really important conversation that has been lacking. And when the government or the political leaders start to, one, undermine the uh, sort of the data gatherers, erase or hide the data, this is one of the most fundamental breaches of the relationship between citizens and state. Um, and it's basically going against the welfare basically undermining the welfare of its people. And there's, I don't think anything worse than you can say about a government or political leaders than that it, it's actually trying to uh, hide its sort of uh, the welfare of its people not going well, or that it's failing in protecting the welfare of its people. So a very fundamental social justice and good society question. There are, I think, also some other more kind of contextual issues uh, that can arise. So for example, in uh, during the Ebola epidemic, there was a profound uh, problem where both the governments and the people were not counting the dead. Um, and the reason was that there was a lot of political pressure to not look so bad that so many people had died from Ebola and the government had failed to protect them. And I think this is one of the most disrespectful things that you can do to somebody is that essentially when somebody dies and you don't even identify that you have died and they hide the body or they bury the body without identification, that is an incredible mark of disrespect for a human being to basically erase their existence. So it's really, I think, one of the um, one of the most fundamental roles of modern governments is to be able to, uh, you know, basically assess where your population is and the health and well-being of its population. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose in there we've gone from um, talking about the collection of data to, to hiding it, and that's uh, the publishing um, of it. Is there a difference between collecting and, and knowing what's going on yourself as a government um, or a local health system or, or whatever, uh, and then making that publicly available? Um, well, there's been some really interesting conversations in the United States about that question, because there's certainly there's certainly a number of laws, um, HIPAA being one, uh, which are intended to protect personally identifiable health information. Um, and the idea is that this is especially important given that there's an enormous amounts of stigma, certainly fear of, of responding potentially to contact tracers, to, to acknowledging um, participating in events that may have been the source of an outbreak. And so the idea is um, there's certain granular data that the government should be collecting and acting on, but would not necessarily be publicly released um, in order to protect the identities of individuals um, who who otherwise might be suffering from from stigma or pushback, uh, the problem, as I see it, is that uh, those laws are being sort of misused or, or or pointed to in an unhelpful way as an excuse to not share any data at all or to to share very little data. Um, so, as an example, uh, there have been a number of schools that have brought back college athletes to campus for workouts uh, over the summer that have had outbreaks. And they've said, well, we're not going to reveal any numbers 
um, at all. And the reason I think that's an issue is that the, the public needs to at least at a minimum know the overall numbers. They don't need to know the names, the, the individual information of the people, in this case, the young athletes um, or, or coaches or trainers who uh, were testing positive for COVID-19. But the public does have a right to know that in their community, there's an outbreak going on. So I think there's certain kinds of detailed data that would be appropriate um, to keep within the health department and within health, you know, health authorities. But we need to think about what kinds of overall compilations of data uh, we have absolutely um, an active ethical obligation to share with the public. And another thing we've seen is, I suppose, you know, you've you mentioned it a little bit there, the, the gaming of data and that sort of um, almost competitiveness. You know, we've seen it within states. Uh, I wonder about that sort of the imperative of, you know, state sharing what's going on with each other or or more broadly even country sharing um, what's, what's going on and, and being clear about the rates of infection within their borders. Absolutely. I mean, certainly within the United States, there there are not borders between states. Um, and what's happening in in Florida, in Arizona, in, in Texas absolutely has implications for uh, the risks in the rest of the country. And this is very, very much true um, across countries as well. So I absolutely think there's a, an active ethical obligation for that kind of information sharing. Um, and unfortunately, I think we've we've seen a number of states go in, in absolutely the wrong direction on this. Um, and in particular, some examples include, uh, as we've also seen at the national level, not um, fully and comprehensively reporting various kinds of, of hospital data, um, such as numbers of, of hospitalizations and availability of ICU beds and so forth. Um, and without that information, it's it's incredibly hard to coordinate. And we need to know that information before health systems get overwhelmed. So I absolutely think there's there's an ethical obligation to be sharing that as much as possible. And it's been really disheartening to, to see the trend go in the other direction right now. Now, locality is only one domain of data that can be um, collected in public health. Um, and I suppose pertinent to to what we've seen in in COVID is things like um, ethnicity seems to uh, um, be an important thing to look at. We know that uh, that has people from minority ethnic backgrounds have have in the UK and the US anyway shown to to have an increased risk of um, of getting COVID and. You know, you can imagine more and more of that other demographic data um, being captured and, and potentially being important. But, um, but Sridhar, as you said, you know, in India uh, already it's been said that Muslim people perhaps um, are a source of, of an outbreak uh, going with the, the populist government there's, um, you know, demonization of, of Muslim people. So so there must be an inherent danger in, in that kind of collection as well. This is it's sort of ethically tricky to, to think through um, that. So let me just respond to that. I think that um, it depends on what you're using information for. 
I think that's the idea is that, you know, on the one, there's a two tensions here is one is that the more that governments uh, and organizations and now companies and et cetera, the more that they know about you, the more control they have over you in some sort of way. They can impact you directly by doing things to you that you don't even know that are being done to you, or they can, you know, sort of nudge you in various things. Or then, you know, this goes into all this sort of other kinds of critical sociology stuff is that you start once you know that all of this data is being collected, then you start changing your own behaviors in a particular way and behaving accordingly and stuff like that. So that I think is definitely true. And there's lots of people that would talk about the dangers of being monitored and measured. Then on the other side, there's an equally pertinent uh, impulse, which is you want to be measured so that you can identify and be known as either vulnerable and at risk, and the system is doing something to address your vulnerability. So, you know, data, if, you know, a good public health institution wants to ensure that the people are healthy. And so there might be excesses where a public health individual institution or researcher might be erring on the side of protecting health at the, you know, not considering anything else and saying, what's most important to me is protect the health of this person. I don't care what they want. Um, but on the other hand, like if they do have a considered approach, more data could help you identify the vulnerabilities of individuals and social groups and be able to target your interventions appropriately to get the care if they need it and also ensure that you know lots of um you know sort of other things can change in order for that person's health and well-being is is protected or improved or at least they have the opportunity to be healthy so i think that there's two um, two potential ways of looking at it, uh, but it's not necessarily bad to want to have more data. It depends on who's actually getting the data and what they want to do with it. And I think it's absolutely right that we should be vigilant about who's doing it and what and what for. Mm. I, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, and I would just add that uh, we've we've seen the, the benefit of really uh, localized detailed data um, when it's used well and when it's communicated well, at least on the local scale, um, to give an example, uh, in the United States, part of what really helped New York City, which back in March and April had had a, an enormous peak of cases, um, do a remarkable job of, of getting their case counts down to the point where New York City is, is doing much better um, relative to many other regions of the U.S., was that the New York City um, Health Department collected really detailed data that helped allow for more calibrated response, which included things like offering hotel rooms to people and living in particularly crowded conditions mm. um, and figuring out which neighborhoods were particularly at risk. Um, and so back to the bigger question of, of how the data is being used, I think part of what is so troubling um, and pernicious about the the uncertainties happening right now in terms of reporting to the CDC and, and what what the procedures are for or how data is getting communicated is that that is going to um, sow public distrust um, and and really harm the public trust that's necessary to be able to collect that kind of detailed data that is helpful um, so 
I think we have to be really, really emphasizing absolute transparency in what's being collected and how we're using it in order to be able to get the data we need in order to be able to get the public trust um, that this data is indeed worth collecting and can actually be a benefit. Um, because if not, I think we're going to be missing out on really important questions about this virus. And I suppose we shall see that uh, that playing out. Have we seen any um, signals? Do we know if it is having effect, if um, people have started losing trust in, in the government and uh, and in that data collection yet? Well, one, one signal um, that I've found sort of preliminarily troubling among, among many is that now um, governments, uh, a number of governments have started doing surveys of parents about their viewpoints about returning to school in the fall. Um, and a lot of this has been reported by Chalkbeat, which is a, a great um, source of reporting on education issues in the United States. And it turns out that there's a much lower response rate among Black and Hispanic families. They've been very much underrepresented in, in responses to some of these school surveys. Um, and it's it's hard to know right now all the reasons for this. Part of it may be accessibility, but part of it also may be indeed a lack of trust in the reasons for the survey, who's conducting the survey, how that data would be used. Um, and whatever the cause, uh, the, the result is that we are likely to have really important decisions that have enormous implications for local communities about what the upcoming school year is going to look like, where the perspective of communities that are particularly vulnerable have been particularly affected by this virus are underrepresented. If I could jump in um, there is that I think I, I see this issue across countries, which is that, um, you know, governments have uh, data and they have lots of different resources. The question is, as you rightly said, you know, what are we seeing whether trust is increasing or decreasing um, in different societies? And I think that if you actually look, if you do, you know, sort of a world survey, I think you'll find that, you know, at, in a default position, there are some countries that have a must more, that much higher level of trust between government and citizens and much lower in other places. But I think Kathleen has just made up important point here is that trust between government and minority populations in the U.S. has never been high. It's always been uh, sort of a weak trust, particularly, I think, you know, since we've last talked, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. which shows you exactly that there is not even an iota of trust between, you know, African-Americans and police forces or the government. So this idea, and I just want us to think about it, is that to live in a country where you do not believe that the government is actually interested in your well-being. I think is one of the most profoundly toxic kind of conditions to live and to raise a family and to live in children. And that's what's been happening for so long. And so what's happening here is that we've seen that kind of distrust going across 
groups and to the majority white population is that suddenly a government that's supposed to be that they've taken for granted that sort of takes care of them is suddenly not doing that and so it's become very polarized and i think in the uk as well what we see is that in general people have a very high level of trust with the government and this is in the uk we have government political leaders and, and civil service as being different things um but I think that most generally, you know, the UK trusts, you know, the civil servants a lot and the government a lot, the political leaders could come and go. But I think at the same time, we also have to understand that in the UK, there's a distrust between minority populations and the government as well. So recently, there's this program called Prevent, where doctors are supposed to report patients who think they might be a terrorist threat and more and more of course you can imagine that the people that are often reported tend up to be south asians uh, asians and, and muslim mm. people and so as a result uh, people don't go to the hospital and don't go to the clinic unless it's really really bad and so that's a background of distrust that's sort of increasing as time goes on and in developing countries i think if you talk to a lot of poor people people they'll say you know what has the government has ever done for me they come around at election time to pay me for their vote my vote and then they leave and they don't do anything so this i think is uh you know a background issue sort of long-standing that's being exacerbated and and one of the most important things that will need to happen and i hope it happens and i'm i think it's the idea of political leadership is what we have to do is that these people who want to run offices and run countries have to build back the trust of its people and you can see how the countries that have done well whether it's been new zealand or taiwan um, and what their leaders and how they're managing the sort of their uh, engagement with people to you know, sort of ensure trust while other countries are simply uh, are not sort of building that trust and so there's going to be a long-term uh, i think consequences of, of people not believing that the the government and their its institutions are actually trustworthy. Alongside the the entire discussion of, of, of trust, of transparency of data, I think what where we're seeing failures to address um, coronavirus does come all the way back to this really fundamental question of public health has to be a part of what it means to be a functioning society. And COVID nineteen has revealed. Um, and will continue to reveal at every level of government um, the failures that exist, the failures of trust, the failures of coordination, of cooperation, of, of transparency, of data collection. Um, and that's, that is the nature of an infectious disease. Um, and so this is going to be and will remain a, a true test and a true indicator of, of what we are able or not able to do together as, as a society, as communities, um, and as the world as a whole. So, you've been listening to Kathleen Vyshinsky and Sridhar Venkatapuram talk about data. If you're interested in public health, you might want to find more of these discussions. They're all available in our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want more on the COVID pandemic, our latest information is always available for free at bmj.com slash coronavirus. We'll be back later this week with some of the BMJ's annual award winners and next week with more talk evidence. 
Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.